The Learning Geeks are back and straight from Havid Yad. It's our favorite Harvard researcher, Tessa Forshaw, joining us again on the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. We are so happy to have you, Tessa. You, seriously, you are our favorite learning researcher from Harvard. I think you're our favorite learning researcher. I don't even know who else we know. Well, we're just going to call you the, our favorite. Let's call, let's call her the favorite, and then if some other person comes on, we'll call them our favorite. Yeah, I can, I can be deuce place. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll qualify. We'll say not from Harvard. Yeah, yeah. This reminds me of my favorite, one of my favorite bands is Flight of the Concords, and they have this song, You're the Most Beautiful Girl in the Room. So I'm the <laughs> favorite researcher in the room. No, we're, we're super happy to have you back, Tessa. And I, I'm very jealous because I know Dana just got out to go out and spend a couple of days with you, and y'all had a good working session. So we thought we could talk a little bit about, you know, what you guys talked about, but also just pick up on some of the last conversations that you had and what what we're learning about learning and what we can apply. And, you know, th that'd be great. So, so Bob, maybe, maybe I can just do a little, uh, a little bit more on your comment. I had the good fortune of spending um, a good, good part of a week with Tessa and the folks at the Next Level Lab out at Harvard. And they're just doing all kinds of really interesting research. They're doing uh, research on things like uh, one's called Reflecting on Reflection, Skills to Succeed. They're doing some research around amygdala hijack. Uh, one of uh, Tessa's colleagues is doing some, has done, and continues to do some really interesting research in the area of awe and people having awe experiences. And then, of course, the stuff that we've been working on with Tessa is the, the work, learn, transfer stuff. So just a you know, shout out to the lab. They're just doing some tremendous research and to Megan and Tina and uh, uh, Chris and, and everybody else out at the lab. Did I miss anybody there? Isabella, our newest team member. Oh, Isabella, you're right, they're new to the team. We did have yeah. to implement so last week a, a $5 penalty for an awe-related pun when we're talking about Megan's work, so. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. I'm sure she'll really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, nobody could say mm, some. Yes, exactly, that was a bad word. But. So before we go on to the thing, when we say awe learning, is that kind of supposed to represent the aha moment when people say that? Or I'm just curious, what do we mean by awe? Well, actually, Dana, do you want to, yeah, you want to take that? I, I will give an, I'll give an attempt and then, uh, and then test you just can, strengthen you, your learning, Dana. I know. It. You, yeah, you exactly. Can strengthen that. The, it's a the way I explain it to people is, and, and this is from the, uh, the initial research that I read, because what Megan did is she interviewed a variety of people in the, in the sciences, right? So people who worked in labs and people who did all kinds of sciencey stuff, science, scientists. And, um, the way I explain it to people is it's, the, the moment of awe is kind of when the universe comes together and you all of a sudden understand stuff in context that you hadn't imagined before. And all of these lights go on. And for a moment, you feel like you're the only person in the entire world that knows that one particular thing. And it's just very satisfying. So, so those are like the, I don't know what Megan would call them, but the, like the mega awes. But then there's also everyday awe. So those are the, I think those, Jake, are probably more like the aha little revelatory experiences that you have. So how did I do, Tessa? Yeah, definitely. And I think um, 
her work really focused on discovering how those moments came about for scientists and what they looked like um, and being able to describe them and, and the role that they played in the process of, of doing science work. Um, it definitely changed my view on science, which was, yeah. was cool. The cool thing is we're going to have Megan as a guest uh, in January or February of next year. We'd have to look at the calendar, but uh, perfect. she's in the middle of doing more research and uh, she said she'll have more to say that, about it then. She'll become your new favorite uh, researcher. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know if she's getting close to us so that you can, you can jump that'll in. That'll be there. Megan's, uh, that'll, her, that'll be her goal. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the main topic there. So you had, Tessa, you had some a story around apprenticeship and transfer and a couple other things. Want to start to share you know, a little bit about that apprenticeship work and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, I have had the good fortune of um, working quite a bit with uh, Accenture through the Next Level Lab partnership. And we recently um, worked with the team there that did uh, run the apprenticeship program in North America, which is one of the biggest um, apprenticeship programs of its type and, and really quite unique in its um, its design. And um, and uh, part of this research, and it's it's been published by the OECD, um, but part of this research was uh, really diving into the experiences of the apprentices throughout their um, learning journey and, um, and sort of using that and combining it with um, a lot of uh, learning sciences research to really um, sort of put forward a position on what is a pedagogy of modern apprenticeship look like. You know, we have pedagogies of apprenticeship that come from um, uh, the sort of traditional crafts apprenticeships. But I would say that today um, in ind industrial sort of contexts, um, sorry, industry contexts, um, apprenticeship is a little bit more cognitive than it is craft-based, if you will. And so it needs some different things. Um, and then we also uh, also you know rely very heavily on situated learning literature, but that isn't explicitly about these sort of um, uh, apprenticeship relationships that really involve um, you know brand new people to the environment who are learning um, a cognitive skill. Um, and so uh, with that in mind, we sort of wanted to to create a, a position. And through that research, something that really struck me as I was talking to a lot of the um, the apprentices and really going deep into their experiences and and understanding, um, I suppose, their aha moments um, in the program as well. Something that really came up for me was um, the, the story of one um, individual who's based sort of in the southeast region of the U.S., and um, they were telling me this story of before coming to Accenture, they had done an apprenticeship with a technical equipment kind of company. And they often dealt in acute situations having to um, deal with manipulate technical equipment to achieve, you know, health outcomes for people. Um, and it's quite high stress environment and it's very dynamic and it's a huge industry and there's lots of different um, people involved in that. And um, initially their sort of thinking was coming to a place like Accenture that none of the skills that they had from that environment would be relevant to their new job as an apprentice. But um, uh, every so often along the way, their teammates and their, their managers would say to them things like, how did you know how to 
talk to the client about that in that way? Or um, how did you know how to, you know, uh, assess each of these risks and figure out which one was the most important? Or how did you know how to prioritize? I think they realized the, the more and more they got into into working at Accenture that they had learned a lot of skills that were transferable, especially around um, you know, things like asking details, asking questions, speaking clearly, taking confirmation. Um, but then even things like, you know, understanding uh, like technical manipulation of a machine versus like technical manipulation of um, the systems that they were using and, and how to sort of check them and QA them and make sure that what they were looking at was accurate and the latest version and all of those kinds of things that put them, you know, heads and shoulders above their peer. And so even though the, the, the apprenticeship work was, was more around this, um, this pedagogy, this sort of story has really stuck with me because um, some of the other work that we're doing really focuses on learning transfer and that just like very organically came up as, um, as an experience that folks were having um, in the apprenticeship program. They were transferring in skills that they had from the work they'd done before. So I had a question on that too, Tessa. When you brought up that person again, had that either they had the aha moment, but was it them that discovered that they have transferable skills, or were they prompted? Yeah, so that is, I think, a really amazing point that you just caught onto. Then it wasn't them that discovered it; it was socially enabled for them. Others identified that they had that skill set and then helped them bring it forward. Um, and in this case of of Carlos, who's in the OECD paper, um, uh, that was their peers and their um, direct manager. You know, all of whom sort of said, "Oh, like." how did you think to do this? Or in the case of the manager, when you did this job, you did this. Now you're doing this job. This is really similar. Um, so yeah, it was, it was socially enabled. So that, do you know, was Carlos feeling confident, more confident after they told him, Hey, there's, you've got these transferable skills. Like how did that improve his experience of this getting into this new role? Yeah, I think it really, really did in our conversation one of the things that I look for in interviews is if a participant sort of just like keeps speaking <laughs> and the pace and the passion, and it's a reason that I don't just go straight to transcripts. I re-listen to interviews as I assess them because I think you get so much. And Carlos was growing in passion and growing in voice and talked for several minutes about these experiences. And so even though he didn't say to me, I feel so much more confident now, um, he did say to me, um, you know, and I've really learned this skill, this this idea that things can be transferred. And um, I, I think that made him more confident based on his affect and that, that statement. But that is my judgment. I love that. Last time I talked to you, you, you told us some research and I was like, great, now let's fix it by doing this and this and this. And you're like, no, you can't do that yet. We have to figure out if it's <laughs> causal. And so now I'm just tempted to say, well, maybe we have the cure for uh, imposter syndrome. But I'm just going to yeah. drop that right there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope so. So, Tessa, a question about the the apprentice-sore. Is that the right term? We don't know. Dana, when we've been, you know, we know we've brought up apprenticeship quite a few times now on the show. But we say apprentice-sore, but we always laugh when we say it because we don't think it's a real world, a word. It sounds like something from Jurassic Park. I use, yeah, that does, I use the yeah. term experienced other, um, which comes from Vygotsky and, and their notion of the zone of proximal development, that you know you have an yep. experienced other on the other side of the yeah. zone. Um, and through participation or social 
interaction with that experienced other, you slowly start to close that zone of proximal development and do things by yourself that you could only do with an experienced other before. Um, and so even though that's not technically always used in the context of apprenticeships, I like it in this way because I think the social enablement, as we've already talked about, is is essential. So now back to my question. Now that we've decided <laughs> yeah. it's either an apprentice, apprentice the, the not a or the experienced other, right? Now. <laughs> the, the not Padawan. Yeah. Uh, so what was my question? Oh, it was the so the experienced other, are they coached to kind of tease out the transfer or is that just something that you found was a natural skill that they had and had, had developed in their leadership profile? Yeah, that's a great question. So in the case of this apprenticeship study, um, we didn't see evidence of that um, uh, in particular. There is a really good um, support system for uh, experienced others in the apprenticeship program, but that wasn't specifically something, something that sort of addressed or called out. Um, and I think it's probably also why like, I heard it very loudly in a couple of cases, but not across every single case. Um, uh, and I think that's a really interesting thing, right? Like the idea that actually your ability to transfer skills forward could be dependent on who you have the fortune of having as an experienced other. That feels like that's something we probably want to do something about. Um, uh, but yeah, I feel like the uh, opportunity to... Um, to support experienced others to better facilitate transfer is also really well um, grounded in the long history of transfer literature. So Randy Engel, who was out in California, um, she came up with this uh, particular type of transfer that she calls um, expansive framing. And really the point of that, her reconceptualization of transfer was saying, actually, this isn't the learner's thing alone the educator has a really big responsibility in setting and priming to students that they will use this knowledge and it will be transferred and giving them examples of how it could be transferred out of the classroom and of drawing in when they're in the classroom and drawing things in um and so that was really it was about 2012 i think and that was really when um, uh, people started to think about the role of, of other people in the transfer puzzle and not just the learner themselves. So you've used the word or the phrase modern apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. Why that designation? Yeah, that's, <laughs> there was a lot of discussion in our lab um, from contemporary apprenticeship to modern apprenticeship to digital apprenticeship. Um, and we went with uh, modern, I think, because it uh, more than anything, it sort of it distinguished what has been a long-standing and very effective and very efficient history of craft apprenticeships. And um, so, modern was just an attempt to sort of say this is an emergent apprenticeship field, and it's a and how we deal with it needs to be a little bit different to how we deal with these traditional craft apprenticeship fields. Oh, it, it it's also interesting too because again, the work that we've done in apprenticeship when we first talked about it from the work that we did we specifically focused on cognitive based apprenticeship very similar to what you're doing in terms of not looking at skill based but again you know I'm also like Bob and Dana in a professional service organization and very cognitive based so we looked at cognitive based apprenticeship and then rather than calling it cognitive apprenticeship because that's not that was something already coined we just said modern apprenticeship too 
because it was it was it's something. Oh, I didn't know that. Great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, that's why it's it's kind of like, well, that's the same rationale of why we call it that too. Um, but yeah, because of the the fact that trades again very successful. But when we were looking at what we are doing specifically, and honestly, I mean, not necessarily all of our listeners, but there's a lot of our listeners out there. Even if you're in a very trades based organization, you could still a lot that you can learn about drawing out insights from somebody that again things that you can't see. And I mean, I think that's exactly right. And there's and there's also so many differences to trade apprenticeships that um, that is part of why it like needs that sort of. Uh, reincarnation, if you will. I think some great examples of that are like in these professional service environments or big technology firm environments, typically you have more than one experienced other, right? So it's not just one, you know, an apprentice working under um, an experienced other. Uh, You might have 15 in some of the cases of the stories that I I heard. I know that in this program that I studied, there was at least five given to them in their first week. So there's so many people for you to learn from. A result of that also means that they're not always trained as well because in the traditional apprenticeship model, you were the apprentice and you all, not only did you learn how to do your craft, you learned how to be an experienced other because of you having an experienced other and watching them. So you learned then how to take on an apprentice. And often you took, you were a sandwich. So you were, you had an experienced other, you were in the, you've just graduated your apprentice and you're taking on an apprentice. And, and eventually that top relationship sort of disappeared, but like you were learning through apprenticeship, how to have apprentices as well. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily true now, especially in these environments where not everybody is coming in through an apprenticeship program. Um, and I think another really big difference is the the remote and um, uh, and globally diverse sort of nature of these programs. You know, you can be working with teams, as again is in in the study that we found. There are teams in India and. Um, heaps of different uh, locations in the US. Um, They're in different time zones. Many of them are working from home. Occasionally they meet people in an office or on a client site, but they're not, you know, standing next to their experienced other in a workshop. All right. This might be a little bit of uh, jumping too far ahead, but if, if you had a magic wand and you were creating some type of training for the experienced others, to be the ideal experienced other or apprentice apprentice people, um, <laughs> what would your magic wand create? What would it conjure up? Yeah. And it does, so, this doesn't have to be based in research. This is yeah. all just throwing stuff out there. So I'll always give a causal disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was because I learned too well. Yes. Um, <laughs> And I think there are things that are proven out in other research that are really effective here. Experienced others um, really, there are sort of three key things that I think are really helpful for them to be doing. So one is taking the time to know their apprentice and where they've come from and what work experience and life experience they've had before. And I say life experience too, because for all we know, you could have 
volunteered at your local faith-based organization and run the marriage counseling program and you're actually an amazing trainer you know like (laughs) so I think work and life experience so understanding who the person is what skills and experiences they have and then helping them do that sort of mapping to task that transfer in in a really deliberate way the second thing um, uh, it, that we saw as really, really uh, powerful in, in this study, um, and I think is backed up by the, the literature, was the role of modelling. So bringing them into things like, all right, well, I'm going to fix this ticket. Why don't you, I'm going to share my screen with you so you can see how I do it. Um, or I'm going to be on this really tough client call why don't you sit in next to me so you can hear how I you know navigate challenging conversations how I bring up that there's scope creep how I do all of those kinds of things Um, and then the third is think aloud so when they're doing things you know making that thinking visible and explicit to their um, apprentices rather than sort of making assumed knowledge uh, around it or thinking that they have the same nomenclature and and um, ways of working but instead yeah being really explicit in how they think aloud about what they're doing why they're doing it and and how they've conceived of it those are really good practical ideas that's great and you're starting to hit at the importance of the relationship between the experienced other and the apprentice which i think is fascinating I, i i was just about to be that guy and go to the what do you think the role of AI is going to be on, you know, a, like if I, as an apprentice, can I use an AI as my experienced other? Um, and I was expecting, you know, I was expecting to go in that discussion somewhere about the relationship um, th- that, you know, the AI probably wouldn't be able to have that type of relationship, but I won't lead you too much. L- let me ask you that question. H- have you thought about- <laughs> you've, already, ha- you've already led her. I have. <laughs> I'm not going to, well, I was going to lead her more, but I'm, I'm going to, that's why I'm cutting myself off. Tessa, what have you, what do you, what do you think? AI, AI's experienced others. <laughs> so I have so many thoughts. The first is I think, I'm not saying that this is not possible. I think that it very much could be like, and I think that this is like, when I look at my daughter and how she interacts with AI, she's three and a half. I think she does trust it. And that is problematic to me how many terms, but I think that the experienced other relationship requires trust because the apprenticeship requires vulnerability. And so um, in that way, like I, I think that I don't think it can be the whole solution is I think what I'm saying. I think that is the vulnerability trust relationship is right now something that is inherently sort of a, a human thing. That said, I think that AI experienced others have a place and um, are definitely starting to be used. And so a great example of that is with code. Um, so a lot of my friends, even my, actually myself included, the other day this happened, I some R code was broken and I couldn't figure out how to fix it. And so instead of just saying to ChatGTB, can you please tell me how I regress this variable and this variable and control for these three things and write the code? Um, I pasted my code in and I said, where is this broken and why? And it told me where it was broken and why it was broken. It did not tell me how to fix it. 
which was amazing because that's not what I asked. And so I think in that moment, I still engaged in a real learning interaction with that, with the assistance of AI. And it was my experienced other in that, in that interaction. And so I think it's about how we design um, those kinds of tools with the with the constraint of them not just being a just-in-time resource, which might be what they need to be in some places, but if we want them to be an experienced other, I think we're going to have to design the interactions to facilitate those sorts of learning moments is interesting. I think it's going to be useful, but it's not the whole bag. Yeah. Well, I think what you just said earlier about your example, the key word there was why. And, and getting and, and getting it to to explain why because going back to the work of what you're explaining from apprenticeship and even the role of that if you are trying to be in that uh, transfer something that you previously known and be that that learner in that situation with the experienced other you have to help draw out invisible insights as much as possible mm-hmm. so if you can utilize that how do you start to build the skills not just only in your social relationships physical social relationships people that you actually know like humans and then and then with and then with uh uh, with ai is see if you can draw out some of those questions same kind of techniques in that context that still could you could benefit from and get those invisible insights yeah why is a great question tessa a question for you is have you personally been in either an expert other or an an apprentice relationship where um, you've seen some of these principles apply that you, the three in particular that uh, you outlined. So maybe you can talk to that a little bit. I absolutely can. Um, a few times. I think the most poignant of them, though, for me is actually this same dynamic that happens between a um, doctoral advisor and a doctoral student. So my advisor, Dr. Tina Grotzer, um, does this. You know, she, she, um, uh, thinks aloud a lot um she especially with things like the stuff that is sort of you know hidden like how do you write grants and how do you figure out the institutional review board and how do you understand what um makes a um a compelling prospectus and all of those sorts of things so she makes all of her thinking very visible um and so that does mean that when I get comments from her, you know, they're like several paragraphs long. <laughs> but there is a beauty in that because I, it isn't just like a, this doesn't make sense, you know, or or I think this should be this. There's the rationale, like her thinking is in there too. And that also means I think she's also investing in the fact then that every time in the future that I give her things, it's not um, – like I'm bringing all of the learning from her forward into the next thing. So she's not always just giving me the same notes. So looking at the clock on the wall, I do have one last question. And hopefully this could be something we can um, bring back to the audience. Organizations, of course, want to say, how do I, I want to improve and uh, increase our skill development, our reskilling efforts. But what the stuff that we're talking about in terms of apprenticeship in those relationships sound great in theory but also don't seem like a fast way to do it, even though I think we may think it does. But what are some ways that you would encourage or influence organizations why this does matter, why this can help your upskilling development and not seeing that as intervention as a, that looks great, sounds great in theory, but we're going to push it off to the side and just focus on what we always do. 
Yeah, I mean, so if we, we sort of take it away from the apprenticeship discussion and we focus just on the, the transfer component of that. Um, the thing, so transfer, I think, is it's a really interesting nut because so essentially it is the idea that you can transfer knowledge from one context and apply it in another. And um, we could talk at length about the sort of history of how it's been studied, but the bottom line is that it used to be studied in the lab environment and very much about like how is what I, uh, like Thorndike studied it and was teach a math problem and then want to see if you got the math problem right. And it, But it was a slightly different math problem. Um, it didn't always work and it didn't show very great effect and it's been very elusive for a long time until um, uh, Dan Schwartz at Stanford started studying it um, in the context of a field trip and a paper that he wrote they saw that students weren't transferring in the empirical way that they thought but actually the way they were solving this what was called the bald eagle problem was um, from the things that they already knew before they had learnt something in a didactic setting about ecosystems a few minutes before. So that makes sense to all of us, right? Like the deeply embedded knowledge that already existed was able to be brought forward to solve this problem. The superficial stuff that you learnt 10 minutes ago in a lab environment didn't, <laughs> didn't work so well. Um, but so the reason I say that, Jake, is because I think a lot of a lot of learning organizations are obsessed with the lab, the, the lab learning. And actually that takes a tremendous amount of effort to set up those um, isolated didactic learning experiences. They cost a lot of money. They require beautiful design. They often require flying people places or um, other sort of issues like that. And so, but they're not always as effective as we want them to be. And whilst they're like sometimes very necessary for, for some things, a lot of the time um, people do have knowledge that they can transfer into a problem space. And so if we can crack that nut in an organizational setting, um, then that means that the learning deficit that they have to fill is much smaller per person. Um, and that is much more cost-effective and much more time efficient. So, I agree like that initial sort of uh, getting getting the um, managers and the experienced others in the organizations um, being used to being able to prompt transfer and foster it and support it, helping the organizational culture start to establish an expectation of transfer being a thing that happens in this place, you know, helping individuals build an understanding of, um, of how to uh, think about transferring their skills, how to learn things expansively, um, how to be motivated to transfer. All of those things take time. Um, but I think in the, the long term, to me, I think that it will be a, a lot, make organizations a lot more agile and resilient. Um, mm -hmm. And it'll, the, I mean, I hope that the ROI would, would pay off quickly, but maybe that's a study we should do. <laughs> There's always more to research. Exactly. Tessa, you can be our experienced other anytime. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. The feeling's mutual. Just because we haven't talked about Star Wars, I think we should uh, refer to Tessa as our research Jedi. Yeah, there you go. There you know what's perfect. so funny is that Jedi to me means justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. Oh. So I'm happy to be that too. <laughs> Dual meaning. Love it. Dual meaning. That's great. Well, we'll be your Padawans and that'll be great. So Tessa, thanks again for joining us. It was great to have you. 
Jake and Dana, as always, my friends, good to see you. And good to see you. Until the next episode of The Learning Geeks, stay geeky, everybody. Bye. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Take care. Bye.